0: Hello, I'm Cassie Gillespie and you're listening to Welcome to the Field, a podcast produced by the University of Vermont's Child Welfare Training Partnership and the State of Vermont. Welcome to the Field is designed for child welfare workers, caregivers, and community partners. However, this season we will be talking all about uncomfortable conversations and each episode will touch on a different type of uncomfortable conversation, So even if you're not working or caregiving in the child welfare field, this season might be for you. Today, we're welcoming back Leslie and Tammy to part two of Navigating Uncomfortable Conversations about Child Sexual Development and Behavior. Now, it's important for me to note that this is part two of a two-part series, and I know you just heard me say that. But the reason I want to stress it is that if you have not yet listened to part one, it's really important to go back, give that a download and a listen because it'll set you up with baseline information about normative sexual development. Okay? Great. Now that we're all caught up, let's move on to part two. Here we go. Thanks, Cassie.
1: Welcome back, Tammy, to part two of Navigating Uncomfortable Conversations About Child Sexual Development and Behavior. Okay, so we're moving up the continuum to talk about the more concerning or problematic behaviors caregivers might be noticing I think it's important to state before we begin that some of the examples Tammy might be sharing with us today might be triggering for some, so please take care of yourselves, take a break from this, reach out for help and support if you need it. Okay, so part one, we talked about the continuum of sexual behaviors, and we focused primarily on the normative end. Tammy, can you quickly summarize the
2: continuum for us. Yes. Thanks, Leslie. So the continuum on the lower end, um, we have the normative, typical sexual behaviors. We then move up to kind of of concern, oh, not sure what these are. They don't seem okay. All the way up to the seek professional help category, which is the problematic sexual behavior.
1: You know, we didn't take this up in part one, but I've been thinking about it. We're using the term normative instead of normal. Why is that?
2: Um, Well, normal. I'm always like, what does normal mean? Right. But normative just suggests kind of what we were talking about or mentioned last episode, which is what kind of happens for most people at a certain stage or developmental phase in their life. So we're kind of thinking about it in that way. Normal doesn't really, we're not going to use that here. Yeah, it has a lot of <laughs> connotation to it, doesn't it? Doesn't seem to fit. But language in general is very important, particularly with this group of kids we're talking about.
1: Yeah, language matters. Let's take a minute to talk about language, maybe just to sort of set the tone for today. What is some terminology that we should know or, or use when we're well, talking about problematic sexualized behaviors today?
2: So, I'm going to make a correction, so problematic, sexual behavior. Sexual, yes, uh, thank you. Uh, because sexualized just has its own meaning, that's okay. So, we want to make sure we're using person-centered, child-first language. Super important to always remember, we are talking about children, you know, age four, five, six, all the way to, to 12. So, instead of using a term that might not fit, we want to make sure we're saying, you know, this is a child who is engaging in boundary-violating behavior, or a child who is demonstrating inappropriate sexual behavior, um, a child child, even if we're kind of bumping up on the continuum, a child who's engaged, or, you know, had a a sexual act out or engaging in sexually abusive behavior. That's going to be a term we want to be really careful about, but there are a group of kids that we're we're going to use that. And in general, just, you know, labeling kids. We have to be developmentally sensitive in how we're talking about the children, how we're talking about their behaviors, and certainly about how we're talking about and gearing our interventions and supports.
1: Okay. So a child who's engaging in blank behavior, as opposed to, I'm going to throw out some terms... Let's see if we can get a reaction out of you here. That we hear uh, folks Guaranteed. use. Sexual predator. Are you going to stop with that one? Are you going to add any or just... Well, okay. but I'll just list them all. Right? Okay. Sexual predator. A child is sexually deviant. That child's a pedophile. That child's molesting another child. Mm-hmm. The use of the term child pornography. Yeah. Put I them mean, all I, out there. For
2: dramatic effect, Take I should have had a bigger response. Yeah, we absolutely, absolutely do not want to use that language to describe um, children. Again, Child first, they are growing. Everything is fluid and dynamic. This is not in large part about sexual gratification and the way that we think about it with much older teens or adults. This is one part of a child's whole kind of being. Um, So we just have to be super respectful. And the terms, you know, perpetrator, pedophile, they don't fit. They are incredibly damning, incredibly damaging for kids. You know, imagine that in your school file or on your, at the doctor or, you know, even in the, at the local designated agency to have that associated with your name. It does not accurately at all reflect what the behaviors are or even describing children. Yeah. Labels. And I freak out sometimes in meetings. It's like, no, you know, or actually encourage people. To the degree that they can, like in a meeting or something or talking with another provider to make sure they're using the language like, well, this is, oh, it sounds like this is a child who may be having, you know, some struggles with respecting boundaries, respecting personal space. This sounds like a child, again, who, who may be demonstrating some inappropriate sexual mm-hmm. behavior. So we're kind of model it. If nothing else, we can model that behavior and how we describe.
1: And then just to come back around again to child pornography, it's child sexual abuse, right? Is the terminology that we're using instead of child pornography. We hear that in the national news even, that term is still being used.
2: So it's kind of, for us today, I mean, I think it's really more just talking about what kids might be exposed to or kind of what some behaviors. But, yeah, a little side note is that it's not, you know, the term child pornography. So now it's referred to as child sexual abuse material Mm -hmm. because it's essentially, in most cases, I would say, I don't know if I can take that any further, but it's really these are kids who are being exploited and sexually abused. Um, And so here's an example, right, of describing something that's happening. What's pornography mean? Or people say porn, which even shortens that more. It's like, no, this is child sexual abuse material. But for today, right, we'll talk about maybe that's going to be more about a discussion about children sending images or taking pictures and that that is not child pornography.
1: Thanks. So we're armed with a little guidance around language, which I think will be helpful. What are some of the behaviors that we're talking about here? How would you describe or or define? these problematic sexual behaviors.
2: Well, it's kind of, you know, last episode talking about that normative piece and and the aspects of it that make it kind of that sexual play, it's curiosity, exploration. When we're talking about those behaviors that are kind of in that middle place, which is like, of concern, Mm -hmm. not sure, and then all the way up to kind of like, oh, this clearly feels like problematic sexual behavior. We're going to be looking at those dynamics again. So it's going to be behavior that is occurring often or more frequently than expected. It's taking place between children of different ages, like a significant age gap or developmental kind of stage, it occurs between children with different capacities. So it could be someone who has an intellectual disability, a developmental delay, another sort of other ability. And so that dynamic is concerning. The other part we're going to look at is how is the other child feeling? Is it like, oh, it was that silly, embarrassed, kind of lighthearted Because this was spontaneous and okay, or it's no, it's something that's associated with strong upset feelings. And it could be anxiety, fear, anger. It could go all the way up to feeling stressed, distressed, traumatized, sure. and it could cause physical harm. Certainly, we know there's emotional harm. Yeah, and then the other really important piece is that the behaviors and kind of strategies that caregivers are using that children are not responding, so the behaviors are continuing. Yeah, like you're trying to set a boundary,
1: you're trying to redirect. You've talked about it; it's still happening.
2: Yeah, and you're setting. You know, like you're like, here are what we call safety rules in this treatment, you know, or privacy rules, and here are the expectations, and kids are not respecting okay. those. And I don't mean like, okay. The, they do it one other time. This is sure. kind of more, uh, more persistent. And then the other piece certainly is if there is overt uh, force, coercion, threat, that's definitely going to bump it up pretty high. Like that is fairly yeah. unusual for kids in this age range. And then so I just want to say, again, we're looking at those dynamics because we talked a lot last episode about – again what's happening not just the actual behaviors themselves so to repeat it's if this behavior is excessive if there is persistence okay. um if kids are demonstrating these behaviors to the exclusion of other activities okay like they're
1: preoccupied with it yeah so you're they're spending doing, a lot know, of time with themselves and they're no longer playing with the kids in their neighborhood maybe yeah. There's a change in behavior.
2: Yeah, and and this could be a a time to—I don't know if we want to talk about this right now, but certainly kids who are, let's say, they're in their room or they're on social media a lot or they're, you know, they're looking at material, uh, sexual abuse material. They're looking at this stuff or something that, you know, just kind of explicit images or just, just, again, to the exclusion of maybe being in a club or doing their schoolwork or hanging out with friends, that it's noticeable, so that, that is something that's certainly important to consider. And those are going to be those, again, those dynamics and kind of context that bump things up. Okay, that's helpful. And I can talk, if that's okay, Leslie, yeah, just to sit. add a few more things. I yeah. was just thinking, just to be a little bit more specific about what some of the behaviors actually are, not just yes. kind of describing. That's where so, I was going. Okay. So it could be frequent or maybe even compulsive self-touching okay. for young kids. We're going to probably say self-touching for older, the older kids on this end, we'll, we could say the term masturbation. Okay. Self-touching. It, self-touch. Not self-pleasure. Right. <laughs> not masturbation. Self-touching. Well, well, self, self-touch, again, is just really describing, literally describing a behavior. Yeah. Masturbation describes it in a way that we typically associate with kids who are a little older. So those 10, 11, 12s in this this group, um, we may say that term. Because that, again, masturbation, that's really more about sexual kind of response and gratification, and that's kind of what's behind it. For younger kids, it usually that's not what we're talking about. It just kind of feels good. Oh, okay, that's a it's important. Uh, yeah. So again, so this could be so some of these behaviors that are in that kind of that mid range to the upper range, explicit sexual talk, behavior or play that just isn't stopping, uh, persistent nudity or you know with that masturbation could be then trying to expose oneself, uh, you know having to get having a bit of an audience, um, engaging so in attempts or touching uh, other private parts like literally touching bodies. This is kind of moving things sure. up. Um, well, there's a
1: t- there's a, I mean, that could be a sort of a normative thing, right? Like in kindergarten, kids yeah. are like, hey, let me show you mine. I'll show you yours. Yep. That's sort of normative stuff. You're like, hey, we're going to redirect. That's not appropriate. Yep. So you're talking about something a little bit more involved in that.
2: Yeah, it's just interesting because sometimes I'm like, oh yeah, these categories will help us a lot. And yep. sometimes it's still really, it's nuanced. It is. It's nuanced. And we have to look at all these dynamics. So it's Aside from an overt force and what we'll talk one example or, you know, a, a big age difference and there's a very clear sexual scenario that, you know, we're like, okay, is is clearly not okay because of age, because of all those things we just mentioned, a force or something like that. The other ones, we have to look at the age again and who are they with and what's the context and are they friends and are they kind of, it's more the giggly, the silly, or is it something else? And there's so much gray yeah. along this continuum. So it is, mm-hmm. I know sometimes I want to say like, no, these kind of charts and again, like Tony Kavanaugh Johnson, like, you know, her chart that spells it out specifically or other places, there's still a fair amount of gray, to be fair. So so those are kind of examples of things that might signal the need to kind of have, you know, more immediate response and support and intervention and follow up. Yeah. Some of the other ones, they're not like those kind of question mark ones could maybe even be kind of handled within a family.
1: Yeah, great. Thanks. I think that's helpful. I wonder if it might be even more helpful maybe to talk through some scenarios or examples to get an idea of what, what it could situation might look like and then talk about how we might respond.
2: Okay, sure. Um, so, uh, you know, one example could be kind of that uh, extensive, maybe it's frequent and maybe compulsive self-touching, could be the masturbating if this is a little bit of an older child. And maybe it's kind of initially in the house, but then it starts to happen at school. And that there could be maybe in conjunction with that, um looking at pornographic material online, yeah. you know, those other things like not engaging in those other activities with okay. other peers or with the family, or like if they played an instrument or a sport or in a club, those kinds of things. So that could be an example. And now that could be like, stay kind of in that mid-range, you mm-hmm. know, of the concern. And maybe want to certainly want to introduce some interventions or supports and kind of focus on mm-hmm. that. Or it could kind of bump up higher, kind of on the, the higher end of the continuum. And I think you were asking about like intervention or is that what you were saying? Yeah.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think your first intervention would be like, hey, you know, let's talk about this. Uh, Let's set some boundaries. It's not appropriate to do that in school. It's a private. Mm -hmm. Let's, you know, in in your room. What's going on? Right. There's let's talk about what's happening Mm -hmm. for you because I notice you're not playing with the kids in the neighborhood anymore, spending a lot of time to yourself. Um, you try to address it by having conversations about it and setting some boundaries, and, and that's not working. And is that sort of when you're finding that it's potentially bumping up yeah. on that
2: continuum? Again, back to those dynamics, you know, like it's persistent even with these kind of supports in place and the clear explanation of what the expectations are and the rules. Again, we call them, we can say safety rules, mm-hmm. privacy rules, and yeah. So you just want to kind of cover your bases. And then some of those skills that we talked about last week, right? Like try to remain calm, try to get some information first about what are the the norms, you know, in yeah. terms of this age range and, yeah. and self-touch or masturbatory behavior. And we certainly want to be, again, clear, uh, try to pull in as much factual information resources. We want to stay away from punitive and making kids feel badly. Yeah. We want these behaviors to stop, and we have to kind of do what you just said. And so, again, it's some of those basic parenting skills that we want to pull into play here. Yeah.
1: And I don't know if you want to take this up now, but we're talking about kids in care. So we're talking generally, our audience is either family services workers or caregivers. Mm-hmm. What's the responsibility of the caregiver to inform FSD or to, to stay in contact with family services around these behaviors and sort of what they've done and, and what to do next?
2: Um, I think... Well, I have a couple different thoughts about that. Okay. So, so firstly, I mean, there are a couple other scenarios we can maybe talk about that yep. might be more clear about if and when do I contact right, someone else. We can hold on to that. Um, yeah. So make sure I go back to that one. So Will if do. we, so another scenario, let's say there are um, two classmates. They happen to be female, and they are, um, they've are. they had some sleepovers together. Okay. And let's say they've had, I don't know, two or three sleepovers. And there's a caregiver who is just noticing that the child, let's say they are, I don't know, let's make them 10. Let's sure. say they're 10, 11-year-olds. Uh, maybe they're in the same class. Um, they've been friends again. But the caregiver is noticing that the child is seeming upset or not herself, Maybe looking uh, stressed out or something. So let's say then the caregiver just does like a check in at dinner or after school or something, and says, "Hey, I'm. Are you okay? You know, or, I'm noticing whatever." And and so maybe the the child says. Give some indication that they're not feeling so okay. Mm-hmm. And so the caregiver asks, like, have you had a hard time at school? Is it like you're having a hard time with a friend? And because the caregiver may have no idea that there might be an issue. Sure. And so the child is able to convey in some way that something happened with this particular friend. Awesome. And so the caregiver knows that there have been some overnights. And maybe the caregiver is like, oh, boy, is it something? So uh, the caregiver says, I noticed maybe you you look sad or upset. And the child's able to at some point say something about, well, there was touching And the child maybe gets teary, Mm. definitely looks impacted, distressed. And so there's a conversation. This caregiver does a beautiful job, right, of saying, what's going on? I'm here for you. I want to make sure you're feeling okay. And the child is able to describe a progression of some touching behaviors with this friend. Like the first overnight, they were just being silly and maybe getting dressed and the other friend wanted to do some touching. And so the child that's talking to the caregiver did a little touching. There was some over the clothes or before they were changing and noticing of bodies. The second time uh, on a sleepover that the other child really wanted to have and this person, maybe maybe this, this child that's talking to the caregiver is a little more reserved, is a little more, I don't know, has a difficult time maybe saying no, um, wanted to say no. So she's able to say to the caregiver, I didn't want to do that. We did it again. It wasn't my idea. I was mad, and then I pretended to be asleep at some point. And then this person is texting her or messaging her or talking with her. There was a third overnight where there was much more behavior that this child talking to the caregiver absolutely did not want to do. Felt like she couldn't say no. And so here we are. Yeah.
1: In my mind, this is definitely of concern. And I'm wondering if it comes in at the problematic level. As my mind, as as the parent, potentially listening.
2: Right. And I think it it could kind of stay in this of concern, but we still want to have some sort of response to um, this is problematic. And so... Even if we kind of conceptualize it in that space in between on that continuum, Mm -hmm. it sounds like we need to do something. So one of the things, and this is kind of what you were, I think, asking just a minute ago.
1: Yeah. What do I, if I'm the caregiver, what what do I do? Right. What am I doing next? Am I calling? calling
2: a report? Or are you saying, oh, do I just call the FSW? Um, And so maybe that's enough. So at the very least, I would say if it's it's a child in care, you definitely need to talk with the FSW. I think it's really important to be very conscientious about how you're presenting the information to the caregiver. I think it's important to share with your child, with the child in care, what you are going to do.
1: Yeah, full it, transparency. It, yeah. Here's my responsibility. I want to let you know. Here's what I need to do. Here's what I'm going to do. You're safe.
2: Right. And here's You're what not in gonna, trouble. Right, right. Absolutely. You did not
1: do anything wrong.
2: Right. And even kind of saying that sometimes kids do this kind of, you know, if there hasn't been a conversation before. The other piece is sometimes, I don't know about this particular scenario, but sometimes it's a call to the other caregiver. Oh, yeah. You know, and just to say, hey, listen, I just want to let you know this is what happened. I mean, that's tricky, right? Because you're not sure how that's going to play out. But it it does seem like that might be important to alert that other caregiver or set of caregivers, whoever, you know, lives there. It depends too on, you know, how well do you know this child. So there could be a lot of factors yeah. to take into consideration. But you definitely want to then assure your child that just what you said, that we're going to talk to this person. Um, we're going to make sure you feel safe. If you still want to have her as a friend and you guys, yeah. you want to spend time together, maybe we could go to a movie or do yeah. something together as with an adult, yeah. just while they're kind of checking it out. Yeah. Um,
1: what do you need? what do you need yeah. moving forward because you're going to be in school with this person mm-hmm. what would be helpful what can we do
2: yeah together? how do you navigate that so that could be one that you know you're like okay we're we talked about it a little bit with the you know the maybe and maybe you decide you want to talk to the uh, medical provider the pediatrician or doc mm-hmm. or not i mean i think that one depends
1: oh i feel like i just need to take a breath after okay, that let's take a breath <laughs> after that, well, a little bit
2: it's a it, lot it's heavy it is a lot and i appreciate you saying that because You know, it is true, and we want to take care of ourselves when we hear about these things, certainly if you're in it, if you're the caregiver of the child that's talking about it to you or the caregiver of the other child who may have their own reaction, like, oh, gosh, I don't want my child to be doing something, and they may have their own response, and certainly, you know, try to figure out what you need for each of the kids, actually. Inter- I was thinking of another example. Love it. Or a couple and then Please we'll do to- <laughs> I
1: think I think examples are super helpful. So
2: let's say there's a situation where there are siblings and these are siblings who have been in care for a while. Let's say they've bounced around, that they that it is well known that these children have experienced um great adversity. So okay. they let's say there was some neglect and then there was um you know, the the home was definitely not safe in lots of ways, that there were unsafe adults around, that um, the caregivers had sexually abused okay. um, the children. So they're coming from this place of multiple trauma insults mm-hmm. and these things that have happened to them
1: are they they're placed
2: together they're placed together okay. and so the FSW is aware of at least some of the trauma history not all of it but the kids were removed all that kind of jazz and so let's say these kids who are similar in age maybe 2 years apart okay and they are engaging in frequent extensive um, sexual behavior that includes all kinds of sexual touching, includes intercourse. With each other. With each other, yeah. Okay. And they they are having a hard time stopping this, stopping this behavior. So this is this is definitely kind of bumping up. And I think this one is kind of an important example because we're like, oh, folks have a sense that there's a trauma history. So maybe yeah. this is where that comes from that maybe, you know, in part from that, or maybe it's about, I mean, we're gonna talk about that, I think a little bit later, but is it about how they connect or how they, just how they relate to each other, but it's definitely something we don't want to continue. So the behavior, (laughs) and so, and so the, the caregivers who took, let's say, if it could be a kinship caregiver or a foster caregiver who had a sense about this and tried to set up some rules, this is an example of kids who really, they really can't Stop this behavior.
1: Yeah, you, you definitely need a qualified clinician and you need to, to work say, with you know, these children.
2: Yeah, and safety plans. And it's, it's probably, you know, most likely these kids cannot stay in the same yeah. home together. But boy, there'd be so many things to consider. Like, they should have contact because they have this relationship. Sure. But it will be something that bumps up. We definitely don't want this to continue. All right, well.
1: That is a for sure red zone.
2: Yeah. Red zone and with like, oh gosh, it's so clear where this comes from and it was modeled and it was taught and they're abuse and they're traumatized, these children, and they're both gonna need a lot of intervention. And then we could think about um, an example. Let's say the one that feels a little bit more clear. Okay. So let's say there's an 11 and a half year old who is in um, either kinship or foster care. And, you know, we don't even have to necessarily know what that child's history is, but maybe they grew up in a place that was really challenging or no boundaries in the home, or maybe there was violence. Okay. And there's a younger child in the home uh, who just turned four. Yep. And there are, you know, caregivers who are there— they're great. they're they're good. You know, caregivers, they may know a little bit about the histories. And a caregiver is noticing that the younger child is appearing. Really upset, um, and for four, that can mean lots of things, like sure. temper tantrums or crying, or yeah. just like. But you're a difference yeah, in their not- affect
1: or yeah. their behavior.
2: Yeah, so you're noticing a difference, and maybe kind of a little bit similar to one of the scenarios that uh, that the caregiver maybe asks a question, or maybe the preschool's noticing something that there is really something going on with this child. Okay. And when there's a little bit of asking, um, then maybe there could be, you know, there could be an injury if there is any kind of force. This child appears scared, so this is something that's incredibly. Yeah concerning. concerning and you've got an older child in the home who maybe has been trying to get some alone time with this child or kind of doing Mm -hmm. that and maybe being nice to them some ways. But as the caregiver, you're like, I don't know, this doesn't feel genuine.
1: You got a feeling.
2: Yeah. And then once kind of questions are asked and this child is able to say something, you discover that there has been, you know, weeks and weeks of sexual behavior. And the sexual behavior involves oral genital contact. It involves perhaps penetration. There's definitely a message about you can't tell anyone. Um, The younger child doesn't quite have the words for what's happening. Maybe at first they were kind of okay with at least getting some attention from the older child because they wanted that. That feels like an example that you know that doesn't. I mean, it doesn't happen often. Mm-hmm. But when I think people think about problematic sexual yes. behavior, I think That's they go they think right about. to that kind. Yeah.
1: And when I think about a situation like that, if I were a caregiver, I'd be like, my gut reaction would be like, I don't know if this kid can stay here. Um, yeah. What What do you have to say about that, Tammy? Well,
2: well, that very well may be the case, and I think that um, in terms of how to respond, like, well, that is a for sure call to right. centralize intake and other services, right? Yep, you, so, that's a re- that's
1: reportable. It you is. Have to make it that is. Call. Yes, and
2: even right. And thanks for saying that because sometimes I think you're going to be back and forth about is this reportable because our audience, I think for the most part, are kinship and foster caregivers or adoptive caregivers, yeah, you're going to have maybe a little bit of sense of history and you're going to have a relationship, hopefully, with FSW, and you'll know about reporting, like what I'm hoping, right, what mandated reporting means, so they'll yeah. call in. And so it is going to be, I mean, ultimately, a report is to centralize intake, but at the very least to the FSW. And yes, this is going to require a quick response. And it could very well be, you know, sometimes uh, it'll be a quick uh, a safety plan just for, the, for a day or two, mm-hmm. if they don't know where to put the older child, let's say, because this is still, we're talking about just like an 11 and a half year old. Yeah. This isn't a 16 year old. This isn't a, you know, older child. But yes, an absolute immediate response, different than some of the other ones, right? Like with the, yes. the girls and the sleepover, that's a little bit different. I think different. that's an
1: important distinction because I think, you know, sometimes caregivers, regardless, will be like, this child cannot stay here. Yeah. But it's important to know and remember that with uh, short-term intervention, uh, setting a boundary, some redirect, some behaviors that are of concern will go away. And um, the child can obviously be safe in a home with other children. And right. I, we need to be careful not to sort of jump to the oh my gosh, this kid can't stay here. Yeah. Right. Because it's important. We want kids to be able to stay in their placements. Um, we don't want kids bopping around.
2: Right. But this, you know, with this example, I mean, because what we have to take into consideration, obviously, is the kids are in the same home and there's a child who, the younger child who is clearly um, impacted and appears to be, you know, victimized, uh, could be traumatized by what's yeah. happening. So that would warrant, again, that immediate response and teaming and discussion and collaboration about what to do. Um, and again, that's the high end. These do not happen. This is not your typical kind of sexual act out or problematic sexual behavior. This is kind of the high one. I just want to make sure that we had an example of that in these discussions. You know, the other one, it could be we're just going to talk about like the safety plan and who can sleep where and kind of just really yeah. focus on what you were saying. So just to kind of to know that, OK, that connection and that communication with FSW mm-hmm. is necessary.
1: So in this this example, it's definitely of concern, right? A lot of kids in care already have therapists, right? They're already working with a mental health clinician. Can you expect that most therapists will be capable or willing to treat kids who have problematic sexual behaviors? Hmm.
2: Well, um, I think a a quick response to like the high, high end, like those, when that happens, it doesn't happen very much, but when it does, Probably not. Okay. Um, and I don't think we should expect clinicians, yeah. like a I mean, general a- practitioner, to be able to have that knowledge and sense of what the resources are and the treatment. So we shouldn't expect that. Okay. In terms of kind of the, even, you know, the, the kind of mid-range, like, mm-hmm. I don't know, of concern, like maybe the example of the that compulsive self-touch or the girls in the sleepover. Okay. You know, maybe. And maybe what you could do is just, um, if you're saying, if the clinician, you know, if it's the FSW or if it's the caregiver— or maybe the caregiver and the child talking with the provider who's already on board, you can kind of figure out what that provider can or can't do or is comfortable doing. Yeah. So the answer is kind of yes and no.
1: Okay. So maybe if you have a provider and they're like, ooh, I don't know, I've never, you know, I'm not, I'll feel really fully qualified for this. Maybe they could reach out and get some consultation before they decide, you know what, we need to we need to refer out for this, right? Because we want, a, again, a You're connected to a therapist. Kids have, if we want to avoid change and turnover as much as possible, right? We want to keep them connected to therapists that they have a connection with. And maybe through consultation they'll be able to get the support they need to continue to provide some care for that child.
2: Yeah, that would be the ideal. You know, that again, we don't want kids to have another adult in their life who's yep. trying to whatever, right? We know how important it is to have those connections. And so if the, you know, the clinician's okay with that, if the caregiver and FSW is like, we can do this, yeah. you know, I certainly have been called in to consult on a case where it's just I don't even need to meet the child or the person doing the consultation doesn't, but it's just, you know, give that person information, talk about that a little bit and create a response. Mm-hmm. And so again, that's ideal. Um, And they can maybe kind of keep checking in. Yeah. And you might need
1: to be a little pushy, right? Like, so FSWs, (laughs) if you're listening, you might need to be a little pushy and advocate with that therapist. Like, hey, let's figure out if we can manage this through you. Let's not jump to uh, referring out.
2: Right. And I want to say that, you know, thinking of all the DAs, the designated agencies across the state, you know, hopefully there's going to be someone there, a clinician um, or a supervisor, a team lead, somebody who's got some experience with this population and, you know, maybe they can consult in-house, you know, with a, a clinician. I think a lot of these kids tend to have providers who are at the designated agencies, not all the time, but that certainly, hopefully there are, I, I think there are those folks, which is really good. So yeah. that should be helpful. But again, if we're talking about the those occasions where it's the high end that's a little trickier to get and I know if there were FSWs here well, they would tell you
1: that. You've been using the term specialized treatment, right? Yes. Or specialized interventions. Yeah. Um, yeah. do you want to take myths versus facts? Do you want to like take that up? We have that sort of on our list of things to cover.
2: Yeah, yeah, we could do let's, that. So let's dive into those. Okay, so one of the I think one of the most common myths is that kids who engage in problematic sexual behavior or boundary violating behavior have been sexually abused and that isn't entirely true. So research suggests that between a third to a half of youth with problematic sexual behavior have they report no personal history.
1: A third to a half?
2: A third to a half. Did I say that right? A half to third? A third to half? A half yeah. <laughs> um, they, but that they do not report any history of, of sexual abuse. So that could, in some ways, we think about that as kind of that overt, hands on sexual abuse. Yeah. But these kids may have lived in environments that there are limited boundaries, that maybe people talk about sex stuff too much, the sure. adult stuff that's not geared for kids or appropriate. Except easy
1: access. Easy access internet.
2: to, you know, uh, no the talk is sexual, that there are, right, the TV or phones or whatever, that they have that. So we certainly want to take that into consideration. The other one is that these kids can't, like, live with other kids. They can't be home or they can't be in their communities. And that's just not true as a blanket statement. You know, we're going to want to take a look at all these kind of uh, variables. And our goal is to keep kids in the community, right? In the families as much as possible, community, and to get those services and wrap those around, Same thing for school. Most of these kids should be in school and can stay in school. And if the behaviors are not happening there, we touched on this last episode, the school doesn't may not even need to know about a lot of these. Again, we're talking mostly, right, it's the middle to the Mm -hmm. low end is what we're normally talking about with this stuff. I guess the other big one is that, oh, if kids demonstrate problematic sexual behavior, it's never going away and they're going to turn into adult
1: uh, offenders. Well, that's certainly a fear. Right, that caregivers' parents have.
2: Right. And that's not true. Or that, that it's just going to keep happening. And when we know that in in truth, most kids will never engage in another problematic sexual behavior. And that in terms of kids who then, they go through treatment, they have the interventions, those rates are between 6 and 9% that the behavior happens again. And this is research and data collected over the years. And that
1: statistic is amazing. Yeah. I think if we asked people... To give us a percentage of kids who, again, continue to engage in behavior, sexu- problematic sexual behavior. Yeah. People would not be kicking out six to nine percent.
2: No. So it's good. I it's think good. it's really.
1: I think. I think we should probably just state it again because I think yeah. that's really important. <laughs> right. For so people between, to hear.
2: yeah. So in terms of re-engaging in a behavior, engaging, continuing to to engage in a behavior. That the rates are just six to nine percent, and I don't mean to suggest that that's not harmful or sure. to the children on the other end of that. But that is important to know.
1: Well, I think it gives if you're a caregiver or a parent of a child who's engaging in these behaviors, it gives you an incredible amount of hope. Yeah. Right.
2: Right. For your child, and that the, and that there's treatment that works. So there's a treatment. The the gold standard is a treatment that's called problematic sexual behavior cognitive behavior <laughs> behavioral therapy. It's a mouthful. So it's PSB. CBT so problematic sexual behavior cognitive behavioral therapy I didn't know there were different types of CBT there are and so this is this came out of a research project from many years ago the state of Vermont was involved University of Oklahoma and folks at Washington State. That's cool. And this was in the 90s, way back when. Ooh, Vermont, um, look at us. Yeah, so, so there is. So it, it's evidence-based and treatment that works. They have a preschool component for folks in Oklahoma have a preschool component. We don't have that here. But there are, so it's typically um, a short, relatively short-term intervention okay. between 16 to 18 weeks, sometimes 12 to 16 weeks, and it has to involve caregivers. So caregivers and kids coming together. And it's, uh, again, it's cognitive behavioral. It's teaching skills related to regulation, you know, kind of identifying what is normative expected behavior. Um, It helps uh, caregivers know how to respond. You know, caregivers get to be with one another in a situation. So kids and caregivers come together in a group format and so um, caregivers have other adults in the room with them who they mm-hmm. can kind of talk about this way that this this kind of behavior brings up shame and embarrassment oh, yeah. and just terrible feelings for the caregivers as much as the kids or they both kind of feel it. And so the yeah. kids also then are in a group and they're getting information like, oh, I'm not the only kid who has this issue or, or this kind of behavior that's kind of getting me into trouble sometimes. If you were looking for a provider who
1: can, what's the right term, administer, use, uh, treat, you know, PSB, C B T, how do you find a clinician who's qualified?
2: It may be that the um the different DCF district offices may have a list of providers, okay. which might be helpful. And then again, I would say that hopefully at the designated agencies across the state, there's gonna be some a provider in there or a couple of folks who at least kind of know what this model is and have some experience. And so I think you would start there. There's so many great resources. So the problematic like sexual behavior. Cognitive Behavioral Therapy—it's such a mouthful. Um, so you know you can find that. You can go to the the National Center on the Sexual Behavior of Youth. I can never string those letters together. Yeah, it's
1: a mouthful. Um,
2: is right is a, is a great resource. Um, again, we stopped We talked about Stop It Now before as a resource. Uh, Amaze.org, uh, Saber Society Press, right here in Vermont, has a, a list of folks and providers who could. You could potentially contact. Okay. There's good video, so there there are some resources, and we're going to have those listed, right, Leslie? Yes. And so again, I think that the most important part is just to remember that these are kids first. That most of these kids will never engage in another act out, another problematic sexual behavior. And that with support and guidance and that specialized information, that they can kind of overcome these sexual behavior problems and just kind of be regular old kid. And that yeah. and that the other part that's important is that kids can kind of move up and down a little bit on this continuum. And even if there's a child who in the past has had a kind of a documented problematic sexual behavior, other behaviors that they engage in are in the normative and typical range. So we want to kind of make sure of that, too. And that the caregivers... You know, when you work with your child, that we can, that stuff can just get better, and you can talk about it. We're going to pull in some of those basic kind of caregiving, parenting skills, yep. and that there is hope, lots of hope absolutely. for this population.
1: Yes, thank you. I think that's an important part of this message: is that there's hope, um, and it's important when some, when you, when something happens, right? Take a moment, breathe, yeah. think about
2: responding better uh, instead of reacting. Right, right, absolutely. Right. Right. Uh Yeah, right, Right. like catch your breath, get your feet on the ground. If it's like that high-end thing, yikes, which it likely won't be. You know, that's about just really establishing safety and everyone's okay first. This time it's more take a breath, take a step away if you need to. If you need to separate kids, kind of do that, remember? Mm -hmm. And hopefully you've done some homework and you know maybe a little bit about kind of normative development stuff. Uh, Talk to your partner, talk to a friend, get on the phone and talk with your FSW, the medical provider. So do those kind of things and just kind of maybe you can say yourself oh wait I remember I, I saw this podcast or no you didn't see it <laughs> I heard this I podcast heard or I know this there's, there's this great resource and it reminds me that it's okay and a lot of these behaviors are going to be on that on that lower end awesome and responsive to intervention yes
1: well great thank you so much Tammy this has been wonderful and uh, I certainly have learned a lot and hopefully our listeners have as
2: well
0: yeah thanks Leslie
2: thanks for having me you bet
0: Welcome to the Field is produced by the University of Vermont's Child Welfare Training Partnership and the state of Vermont. Our theme music is composed and performed by local band Brickdrop, and our sound production and engineering is brought to you by Egan Media Productions. We'd also like to give a special thank you to our in-house technical production assistant, Emma Baird. For Welcome to the Field, I'm Cassie Gillespie, and we'll see you next time.